you know, there's no one right way to use a silicone muffin cup outside of the kitchen. And so when a parent sits back and watches their baby play with it, there's less of this urge to step up and teach, right? Having it be open-ended, I think, is freeing for the adult so they don't have to be like, oh, no, 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 you put the ball in the hole. Rye, or Resources for Infant Educators, is a parenting philosophy that was created by Magda Gerber in the 1970s. You may have heard me talk about Rye in passing on the podcast, or perhaps you listened to one of my very first podcast episode interviews with my own Rye mentor, Deborah Carlisle Solomon. And if you haven't listened to that one yet, definitely check it out once you finish this. There's so much good stuff in there. But in my work with parents, I found that many people really are not familiar with Rye, and often those that are have a few common misconceptions about this approach. So joining me today to talk about Rye and bust some of those myths is Courtney Dern. Courtney holds a master's degree in education and a graduate certificate in infant and toddler mental health. She's trained in Rye Foundations and is the founder of Beach Street Parenting in Portland, Oregon. This episode is not about telling you how to parent what to say, or how to do things. It's simply about helping you discover, as I did, how to take what works, leave what doesn't, and create your own unique parenting roadmap that fits best for you and your own family. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, Courtney. It is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. So you and I connected through Instagram um, and we have some some stuff in common, like from our backgrounds, because we both got really into Rye um, and you've you've taken it even much further than I ever did. But I I love the work that you're doing. And I was really excited that you agreed to come on the show because I I found Rye to be so informative and influential in my parenting, in my clinical work. And I really wanted to do an episode where I brought someone on who who is in the process of becoming like a Rye associate and and can talk to their experience of like moving into this world and what it's like. And as a parent too, because you are also a mom. Yeah, I'm a mom, <laughs> which is really cool. It's, it's so awesome to have a personal connection to the professional work that I've been doing for, you know, over a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had, we, you, we were talking a little bit about some of your teaching experience before, and it's really interesting because you've had a really, a wide range of different types of, of educational experiences, like, and influences, like that they, they don't all look very similar. Right. Yeah. I definitely program hopped for the, the first, uh, years of my professional life. Like I think most millennials, right. So after college, I, did a Fulbright in Norway and I was teaching there. Uh, I was teaching middle school and then also kind of TAing for a U.S. history class. But because I love babies, I kind of weaseled my way into a gig at an outdoor preschool um, where I could at least volunteer there as well. So I 
wanted to go to Norway in part because of this interest in work-family balance, because that's obviously something that the Scandinavian countries do a lot better than the U.S. So I spent a year in Norway teaching. And then after that, I came back to Washington, D.C., and I worked in D.C. at a program called KIPP, which stands for Knowledge is Power Program. It's a kind of like one of these high-stakes, high-achievement mm-hmm. charter schools. Uh, and I'm really grateful for that experience. I learned a lot about classroom management and um, what it looked like to be a pretty crisp and mm-hmm. empowered educator, I think. Um, but then I moved on. I moved to the West Coast and did Teach for America. And in Teach for America, I was working with preschoolers and kindergartners, and I taught at kindergarten at KIPP as well. And then I moved to Google after my Teach for America experience. And at Google, where I was working in their childcare center, is where I found Rye. Long story long. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Rye. What can we? Can you talk a little bit about what Rye is? What it stands for? What it's about? Sure. Okay. So RIE stands for Resources for Infant Educarers. And that's an acronym that I didn't always love. Mm-hmm. I used to think that that educarers was a bit of a mouthful, um, but it, I've come to love it, right? It was um, it was created by a woman named Magda Gerber, who was one of the founders of RIE. And the educarer word itself, I think, um, you know, combines education and caregiving. And the reason that I love it now is that they are so in, inextricably linked, right? You cannot learn if you don't feel safe. So the caregiving element of early childhood, and in fact, like all childhood and all humanhood um, is so important, right? And so vital for the learning. So I used to not like that word. And now I've really come to own it, educaring. Yes. I have the same. Every time I tell people what Rye is, first of all, I live in New York and I live in Westchester and there's a city out here called Rye. And so whenever I talk about Rye, people are like, you mean Rye, New York? And I'm like, no, I mean Rye, (laughs) the parenting philosophy. And then I explain the acronym and it's such a mouthful. And Mm -hmm. I actually think I too, I think if you know what it stands for, when you really know what the the mindset of Magda Gerber when she created the word educare was, it's so beautiful. But mm-hmm. when you've never heard this term before, and I think this has something to do with some of the ways that people don't understand Rye, is that it can sound a little like, okay, you, I don't understand what this is. I can't relate to this weird acronym and these weird terms. And now it feels sort of like I feel disconnected to it. It feels a little elitist or like an inside thing that's hard to understand. And I think there are some real misconceptions about Rye in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of them are very contradictory. Like I feel like for some people it's like Rye is too rigid and too – prescriptive and too elitist. And for others, it's like, Rye is too permissive. It's not strict enough. And so it's like, sometimes the misconceptions even contradict themselves. But I'm curious, like what in your work kind of in Rye in that, in that world, studying about it, practicing it, are you finding misconceptions out there about it to be common? Absolutely. I think there's been some high profile articles with some misconceptions in it recently. And those have been really interesting for me to read as a practitioner, right? Because 
um, Rye is so near and dear to me, and I feel that I have a really deep understanding of it at this point after so much training and, you know, practicing it personally and professionally, that those articles are really helpful because then I can kind of see a little bit outside of maybe what somebody looking in would see, right? And it helps me a little, like, empathize with perhaps these misconceptions that you're talking about. Um, And I think, you know, to begin, I think Rye is a philosophy of caregiving based on respect and individuality, right? So like respect for the parent and respect for the child and an acknowledgement that both of those people are people, are humans, right? With unique needs um, and dynamic moods. So I think that if if you're understanding that it comes from a place of recognizing humanhood, it makes it a little bit less prescriptive, right? And I think you're totally right that it can feel, especially if you are just learning about it, like a list of rules Mm -hmm. that don't make a ton of sense. So for example, you know, in Rye, um, there's not, you know, like true Rye wouldn't promote the use of a high chair. And so some people hear this, right? And they're like, what? (laughs) Like now you're telling me I can't use a high chair? Like, of course I'm going to use a high chair. And so I think it's an interesting, really, really small point to dissect, right? Mm Because it's like, okay, let's talk about the high chair. (laughs) You know, the the thinking behind not using a high chair, I think is really, really sound. So the idea is that you know, you would sit with your baby on your lap and at the table, at the dinner table, um, you know, perhaps before they're like less dirt, like when they're less sturdy to hold themselves up and you would invite them into the meal, like once they're ready. Um, and then as soon as they are able to get themselves to a seated position, it's a really great time to enable them to sit at a table on the floor. So the idea behind, you know, <laughs> Um, not having a high chair is that you would have them at your table in your lap and then you would have them on the floor and it's a little bit more perhaps developmentally appropriate because you realize that the child's going to be there while they're eating but you know Magda Gerber says the child is ready to eat but they're not ready to dine Hmm. and so um, the high chair thing is like one of many examples in Rye where you're trying to take the child's perspective, right? So you're trying to meet them where they are. And that empathy building piece, I think, can be really empowering for the child and for the parent. Yeah. And I think the, the alternative, right, is um, potentially like propping them up in a high chair before they're ready, you know, securing them down so that they can't move and having that feel a bit more convenient for the parent. Mm-hmm. And I should say that I use a high chair, you know, <laughs> like I'm a, I'm a ride practitioner and I use a high chair and I, and I think I can do it pretty respectfully because I tell my child when I'm about to put her in the high chair. And then when she asks to leave, you know, not through words, but through actions and through her body communication, then I can give her those words like, Oh, you really want to get down. I think you're done eating. Yeah. I'll help you get down now. You know, so it's not a place, it's not a dumping ground, but it is something that I try to use intentionally. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, another misconception about Rye is that you have to follow every rule, like in order to be truly Rye. And I think Rye is actually more of a mindset and a a way of, it's like a guiding compass rather than like a set of rules one must follow. Like I too used a high chair. I also started <laughs> off not using a high chair and I fed my mm. kids sitting on my lap and I did get a, you know, a little lap tray table that I'd sit on the floor and I'd put, I would sit on the floor and my child would sit across from me on the table. And that's how we started. Mm-hmm. 
And then I also realized this takes a lot of physical effort on my part. It takes a lot of time. And sometimes it's just easier to put my kid at a high chair and sit with them there. And I did, I did all of it. I did all three of those things and I'd move between them back and forth and mm-hmm. it's okay. Like there's, you're allowed to kind of find the way that works for you and your kid, but that's the point. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. Like, like mm-hmm. I love your point about like trying to look at things through the perspective of the child. What, where are they developmentally at? Can they sit up on their own? Or would sitting in a high chair mean that their body is like slumped over and they're sort of stuck Mm -hmm. in this upright position that they can't really get into or out of on their own? So I moved into the high chair once my child was very capable of like sitting by themselves. But a lot of times people Mm -hmm. begin food before a kid can actually sit, which because developmentally when we start food and when we can sit aren't always lined up. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think that, you know, I teach these parenting preparation classes and at the beginning I try to give this preamble, which is, you know, we're about to spend six hours talking about babies together. I'm going to tell you a lot of stuff. A lot of it is Rye inspired. And I want you to take what makes sense for your family away from this. And I want you to feel really willing to reject what doesn't make sense to you. And either way, I think that's confidence inducing, right? Because you're doing it intentionally. So you're saying like, okay, now I've like, I've considered rather than just buying a high chair because it's what everyone does. I've made the choice to buy a high chair because I think that actually makes sense. I want them to be at my eye level. I want them to be part of the table, you know? Um, And I think that's, that's what I try to do. And that's what I think Rye has done is just giving you a glimpse into the child's perspective so that you as the parent can make more informed choices, right? (laughs) More informed choices that aren't based on, um, you know, Google listicles that you might otherwise come across if you're a new parent trying to figure it out. Oh, that was one of the best things about knowing about Rye is I bought so much less stuff. I feel like Mm -hmm. the toys, the, and I buy toys, I really mean like play objects because, you actually end up buying a heck of a lot less toys, like capital T toys and a more like, you know, the, the peaked napkin or the metal bowl. And like my kids had tons of fun with that stuff and I didn't actually buy anything. Not that I didn't buy anything. I definitely bought stuff, but like I bought significantly less than I probably otherwise would have. Right. Um, yeah, I think even talking about, you know, the toys or the play objects, like you mentioned and rise kind of a helpful way to get at understanding the approach as well. Um, so like in a, in a rye, in the rye approach, Magda Gerber advocated for simple, safe, infinitely manipulatable, open-ended objects. <laughs> and so, you know, that can be, you know, the peaked napkin as a first toy. It can be, um, you know, a silicone muffin tin or any, you know, any safe thing that you would find in your, in your kitchen. And I think it stands in contrast to perhaps the other major infant pedagogy out there, Montessori, yeah. <laughs> which is um, a bit more prescriptive in its <laughs> sequence of introducing babies to pr- really particular 
objects, right? So even like the Montessori mobile progression, right? It moves from like the Munari mobile, which is the black and white one into more tactile mobiles. And it's, um, it's pretty hands-on for the parent, right? Of like, you know, you introduce this, then you introduce this, and then, you know, you get the subscription box that then tells you, then you need to do the object permanence box at a point and you need to do this at this exact point. And I, you know, I love a lot of models about Montessori, Mm -hmm. but, um, and Rye is a bit more, you know, one of the main tenets is trust, right? You put trust in the child. Like, yes, you curate the environment and you set out a safe playscape for them, but you trust that the child will play with what they need to play with, depending on whatever skill they're developing at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's been pretty cool because the materials that I have in my daughter's, you know, yes space in her room are largely open-ended. And my son still plays with them and he's four, right? So he can go into that space and he plays with the open-ended materials, but just in a really different way. So it's like, yeah, now, you know, instead of just manipulating the silicone muffin tin and exploring its properties, now it's um, a trough for a cow or something, you know, something a little bit more symbolic or imaginative. And yeah, that's, I think, the power of those open-ended materials. Absolutely. I find that too. I mean, I I feel like the toys or objects that I kind of curated for my daughter, it's because it's interesting. I I knew about Rye when my son was born. He's also four. He's almost five. Um, And I did my best to kind of do it on my own. And when my daughter was born was when I finally had time to because I did it when I was on my maternity leave. She was like two months old when I did my Rye Foundations training. I remember like pumping in between like <laughs> session, like lesson breaks um, mm-hmm. and going home and being like watching it all unfold with her in her infancy. And it was so cool. But so I got a little bit more intentional with like the objects that I was providing for her to play with when she was, you know, an infant and those are the toys that my son now plays with the most. Like they're just the, they're the things that are still exist in our home. And I have a three and almost five-year-old. And like, that's the nice thing too about the open-ended play materials is like blocks and silicone muffin tins and like pom-poms and things like that. Like they're forever usable. Right. <laughs> they don't, they don't stop with a certain age. So you also just, I think, accumulate a lot less stuff because the things you have, like your child changes them to evolve to meet their needs versus having to constantly renew and re-up and get more toys every couple, you know, every leap. Right, right. Yeah, there's so much to say about (laughs) toys and play objects. Um, And I think, you know, we... I think it's like really interesting to think about why we even have toys, right? Like toys kind of mimic what children used to play with in nature. And so when you think about like, you know, kids forever have played with sticks and rocks and those like loose parts out in nature and the open-ended materials that you provide are more similar to those, right? That they're able to be, you know, a child's a bit more able to be creative in their use with them. And then the other thing, the other benefit I think of open-ended materials that, perhaps people don't think about that often is, you know, there's no one right way to, we keep coming back to the silicone muffin tin, but you know, there's no one right way to use a silicone muffin cup outside of the kitchen. And so when a parent sits back and watches their baby play with it, there's less of this urge to step up and teach, right? Of like, no, 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 you're supposed to do this, right? You know, like if the baby wants to put it on their head, if they want to put it in their mouth, if they like the way that it feels when they like 
pounded into the ground. Um, there's a number of ways that a baby would experience that object and having it be open-ended, I think is freeing for the adult. So they don't have to be like, Oh no, no, no. You put the hole in the box. You put the hole, or the, I'm sorry, the ball in the hole. You put the ball in the hole. You put the ball in the hole, you know, like teaching mm-hmm. it, teaching it and feeling like that's their job. And, you know, a lot, a lot is demanded of parents, mm-hmm. but teaching your baby how to play isn't one of them. Yeah. And I think that when parents realize that it can feel really freeing for the baby who isn't manipulated and taught and coerced how to play in a certain way. And it can feel really freeing for the parent to realize, wow, they know a lot already and I can sit back and I can enjoy them and I can learn about them for what they're, what, what they're choosing to do already. Right. And that's what we do in the play groups is sit back and watch the babies play and notice what they're able to do notice what they're interested in. That's really lovely. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about parent infant play groups? And I know the one that you lead is Ryan inspired and these are sort of like born out of Magda Gerber's original, like, this is what she did. She had a little house in California where she would teach these parent infant classes and really like, can we talk a little bit about what those looked like and what the work you do looks like? So parents who may be interested in like learning more about this could like kind of imagine what it would look like to do a parent infant class if you were going to dig into Rye. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, my job as a facilitator is to set up a playscape that's developmentally appropriate for the baby. So for our pre-mobile group, I will set out mats and then a nice, clean, solid color blanket. And I set it out so it's firm enough because these babies are working on moving their bodies and soft enough that it doesn't feel, you know, painful if they slip and bop their head. Um and then I put up those like these objects that we're talking about, right? So I try to do a variety of textures, materials, some some wood, some metal, some plastic, some silicone, uh, some fabric. So I put up those peaked scarves. And then the idea is that the parent, um, you know, puts the child on their back where they have the most freedom of movement, close to the objects, but they don't put the objects in their hand because they trust that the baby will reach out and grab them if and when they're ready, right? So a lot of the babies in this pre-mobile group are still organizing their bodies. So we give them plenty of space to stretch their limbs, to move their head side to side. Um, And we don't necessarily try to, you know, force them by dangling an object above their head to engage with something. We mostly just trust that when they're able and ready and interested, they'll reach out and grab objects. And if they're not doing that yet. It's because they don't need to. <laughs> They're still, you know, babies discover their hands at around two months, two, two months of age. And I think parents sometimes unintentionally, you know, put, put like a rattle in their hand, right? And the kid is just figuring out that their hands are attached to them, right? And if you don't do that and you let your kid just trip out over the discovery that their hands are connected to their bodies, like, man, that's a cool thing to watch. And why would you ever rush that? (laughs) You know, it's a really important skill to know how your body works and how um, you can control it. Yeah. So they're very slow. I guess that to answer your question, they're very slow paced. They're based in observation. We do like a warm check-in when the parents arrive and then we watch the babies for a certain period of time. And then we just kind of chat about parenting and what we observed and how it felt. And, um, One interesting component is that we don't have an ask no ages policy. 
which is pretty unusual, right? So kind of the most common first question that you get is, how old is your baby, right? You put your baby down next to another baby and that baby rolls and you ask like, oh, how old is your baby? Because you want to know, right? You want to know, is my baby behind? Is my baby, is there something wrong with my baby? Is my baby advanced? Um, And I think comparisons can be really helpful, right? Because you don't know and you need to kind of have some context. But the idea in the classes is that all, and in RISE, that all children develop at their own pace, right? And so that shouldn't be this competition to do it faster. And it's more an appreciation of whatever they are is where they are. And we trust that they'll, you know, get to wherever they need to go, right? They achieve verticality, Dr. Emmy Pickler said, in the first year of life ish mm-hmm. at their own pace. Yes. And verticality means being able to stand up and then walk, right? We go from horizontal to vertical. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, you know, I think it, it's, it comes as a shock, I think, to parents that you don't have to, another thing that you don't have to do, like you don't have to teach your child to sit. You don't have to teach your child to stand. You don't have to teach your child to walk. I know. And that's, um, that's really surprising for a lot of parents because yeah. I think you, you see it a lot, right? You see a lot of of propping and we're super trained to that. Like, I mean, I, I thought that was something really profound for me to realize. Like I assumed when I sort of was pregnant with my son and imagining having a kid before I found Rye, my, that fantasy was very much involved. Like, what am I going to teach my kid? How am I going to teach them? What is my role? And what am I going to do to make my child like learn this and do this and get here? And finding Rye was incredibly, it was like liberating in a way I didn't even realize I needed liberation in the sense that it was like, oh, that's not my job. My job, I do have a job. It's not, I'm not absent. Like my job is to be present. My job is to, you you know, be connected to, to be with my child, to follow their lead and to be curious about where they're at. But my job, I, I, I've, to not have to like practice sitting and practice walking and pra- like to really authentically trust that they will get there. They can't not. I mean, obviously there are some times where there's like delays in gross motor development and we want to be aware of that. That's I think where your point to like comparison has a, has a role and you know, your pediatrician is going to be also comparing your child to your child on their own growth chart of their own motor development, but like, obviously like outliers aside, like, and even within a child who may be developmentally an outlier, like you still need to compare a child to themselves, not to another child. And so to be able to say like, I trust that my kid will get there when they have physiologically and on a gross motor level, like have the strength to do it. Um, that we're built this, we're built to know this. And, and what I think the reason, one of the things that I learned when I was doing the Rye Foundations that like really helped me understand why that, why it is that way, why Rye follows that model is that, so Magda Gerber, her story is she, she was, she's from Hungary and she's working in a Hungarian orphanage with Emmy, Emmy Pickler, who is a very well respected and world renowned now pediatrician back then uh, after World War II, I think, right? And they they had so many orphans after the war and there were tons of orphanages and the children were not thriving and there was so 
much, you know, m- so many issues that these these children across Hungary were dealing with. I'm sure probably everywhere. But um, Emmy Pickler created this or like started adopting this model in this one orphanage. So what they did was they had attachment figures, basically. So each child mm-hmm. was able to be paired up with a caregiver and I was, was one caregiver for many children, but there was a primary caregiver for those children. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that, that caregiver's responsibility was to attend to their immediate, you know, caregiving needs with full attention and attunement. And then mm-hmm. when they weren't doing those caregiving routines, the child was set down to play and these children thrived and no one was teaching them and the caregiving things were feeding, diapering, bathing, dressing, things of that nature. It wasn't teaching them to walk or teaching them to play or playing with them. It was when they weren't doing those caregiving moments, the children were laid down on their back or put down in a place where they had freedom of movement and they were left to play on their own. And these children absolutely thrived. It was the Lo- Loxi. What was the name of the... Yeah, Loxi. Yeah. Loxi. Mm-hmm. She pioneered the primary caregiver model, which is what you were describing, right? Where there's one person who does a lot of those caregiving routines. And, you know, to your point about um, misconceptions in Rye, one misconception because of its focus on uninterrupted and independent play, some people I think can see it as a pretty cold, you know, um, method, right. Of like, Oh, you put your baby down. If they're trying to reach for the scarf and they can't quite reach it, you just let them struggle. You know, and if that's all you knew about, right. Oof, that would sound rough. Right. (laughs) Like, yeah, you just like, you're, you're okay with your baby just being on the ground, struggling to get that scarf. You're not even going to help them. And I think, you know, to get more into it, it's like, Oh, you, you are helping them by not helping them, right? You are watching them. You are available to them. You're realizing they're not actually asking for your help, but they are kind of showing that they're struggling to get to the scarf or whatever. But I bring it up because the, you know, the independent play doesn't work unless you have those connected moments with your caregiver, right? And so that's a huge piece in Rye is these connected caregiving moments where you're fully available to your child, right? And you're going slow. <laughs> like, so I think, you know, the diaper change in rye is a whole ceremony, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think about doing a diaper change with ceremonious slowness for a baby, you know, and you tell them through every step of the process, what you're doing, you know, I'm going to pick you up. You have poop in your diaper. Let's walk over to the changing table together. I'm going to put you down on the changing table. Now I have a hold of your zipper. I'm going to unzip it. You know, and it's slow, (laughs) but it's peaceful. And you're teaching your child language and you're teaching your child to trust in the process. And you're giving them your full attention. And only when they feel emotionally fueled, what like Magda said, is when they can also feel free to play, right? And so, you know, you wouldn't put your your child down to explore the play objects unless they're in what we call like their optimal emotional state, right? Where they're emotionally fueled, they have a fresh diaper, they're fed, they're not sleepy, right? Like all of those things have to be in place for that play session to be effective, (laughs) you know? Um, And I, I get like, I get DMs on Instagram from time to time, right? Like, how do I 
How do I get my kid to play independently? And it's such a big question to answer, right? Because, you know, like, what does independent play mean in a developmentally appropriate way? And, um, you know, I think, like, does it take you five minutes to transition them to independent play? Do you walk them through the steps? Do you sit down with them? Do you show them what objects are around them? Are you available to them if they need you, but not interfering if they don't? You know, what what practices have you been building with this baby from the beginning? Because, you know, to take it to the extreme, when parents don't know that that's an option and they think they have to entertain their kid all the time, their kid gets conditioned to being entertained all the time. And then when you realize it's not a reality to entertain your kid all the time, then maybe you bring in the TV to entertain your kid or something, you know, because it would be exhausting to entertain anybody all of the time. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. And so that muscle like inch by inch from infancy is really, really important for the kid and the parent, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes me think of like mindfulness in so many ways, but in the sense that like, if you yourself want to build a mindfulness practice, and I think actually Rye sort of inherently has so many elements of like parental mindfulness built it. Like it's a mindfulness exercise in and of itself, but let's say you want to build a mindfulness practice. The idea is you would start a few minutes at a time. You'd be very patient with yourself. Then it was hard and you'd keep reminding yourself to bring your focus, your attention back on the, you know, whatever you're focusing on your breath or whatever. And over time you build this muscle to be able to focus intently on something for a longer period of time. And that's independent play for kids. So it's like you don't expect a child to be able to play independently for hours at a time until they've slowly built the muscle of one, understanding what the skills are that require independent play, right? Like focused attention. And before you can even start with focused attention, you need to have a sense of safety and groundedness and a sense of being aware of your surroundings and knowing where your parent is, even if they're not right next to you. Um, mm-hmm. Trusting that they are nearby enough and will respond to you should you need them. Then you have that sense of I can relax and lean into this focused attention and you get lost in a flow state. And it's amazing to watch. And yes, kids can play for hours at a time, but probably not right away. And that's why I think Rye like sets kids. It's it's really funny too, because if you look and it might just be temperament and personality and other things other unrelated to my parenting style and Rye, but a bit of a case study is like my son who I didn't do like full blown Rye with, um, when he was in infancy, because I didn't know about it then. And when you look at my daughter who was literally born right into like a Rye approach, my daughter can play so much longer and more independently than my son. And that could be for a million variables, like second child, she just had to. But I really think her introduction to play objects and the way we approached independent play from birth built up a framework for her around what it looks like and what it feels like. And it's amazing to watch. Yeah. I think Janet Lansbury has a quote, right, that's the direction a child or the direction a baby is looking in is play, right? Or like play for an infant is the direction she's looking in. And I love that, right? Because when you can kind of see that babies are playing, you know, they're tripping out or like I have this picture that I use in my parenting class of my son looking at a vulture on his wall during a changing, like during a changing session. And he was just tripping out looking at it. 
And I could have used that time to change his diaper really quickly. But because I knew about Rye, I used that time to just watch him looking at it. Because I think, you know, kids get a bad rap for having a short attention span, but it's oftentimes the adult that kind of interrupts them to move on to the thing. So I would wait, you know, not long, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And then eventually he'd like move his eyes back to me. And then I'd say like, all right, let's take your diaper off, (laughs) you know? And I think that that's a small little anecdote, but the idea that children engage in activities that they want to engage with first by gaze and then by, you know, mouthing and touching. But when the parent realizes that those are valuable experiences and don't hop in to interrupt or gain the attention back or, you know, feel like you have to be constantly playing peekaboo or something, then um, that child builds that muscle, like we were saying, you know, that mindfulness muscle, that concentration muscle. Yeah. And going back to that Loxi Hungarian orphanage example, like, you know, we don't need to be us, you know, we don't need to be um, in a recreate an orphanage in our home to like build this stuff. It was just that it was founded off these principles that Magda observed in this orphanage that like, okay, why are these kids thriving? She tried to identify the variables that were working for these children in this situation. And I think what she landed on was so spot on, which was attachment creating a meaningful, safe relationship with a significant care provider. Uh That sense of trust that your needs, your basic needs are going to be met and you know who's going to meet them and you know and you trust they will reliably, consistently be met. Not all the time because that care provider was providing for a number of children and they had to wait. And it's not about like instant gratification either, right? That doesn't create secure attachment that creates actually like anxiety and enmeshment and all that stuff. But so that sort of good enough parenting or caregiving, and then this sort of free opportunity to play and to, to develop, right? That gross motor development was not taught to those kids. And, you know, they, had free reign to within these safe yes spaces to climb and explore and do all these really amazing gross motor development. Like we talk about, we haven't talked about it, but I have talked on here about the pickler triangle being one of my favorite toys. Um, that's still in use in my house with a three and a five-year-old. Like, so going to this place of like your kids will get to these places given the free time to do this exploration. And so um, I think taking those two elements, right, and she probably took more, I'm probably missing many, but that attachment relationship and that opportunity for self-directed learning and exploration uninterrupted by that caregiver, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of what she built Rye on. And that's one of the things that I think is what for me felt so aligned with what I knew about child development going in to finding Ryan being like, whoa, this is like fits what I know. Like we need attachment. I didn't know what the gross motor stuff and all that stuff. And I was like, I love that. Um, But it fit with what I knew about maternal mental health, which is that we need to be able to be whole people with our children to be healthy. Um, and if we're constantly doing everything for our child and entertaining everything and like being just 
not having our own boundaries and our own meeting our own needs first and in tandem with our child, then like we're not going to be healthy for our kids either or teach them healthy ways of showing up in the world for oneself. Right. Yeah. I love that. Have you ever watched any of the videos of nurses doing the caregiving routines at Loxie? Yes. Like a bath with one. Oh my God. <laughs> like anybody who thinks that, you know, like rise cold or clinical, you know, I'm like, just watch one of those videos, right? Like they're so connected, so sweet, so slow, so intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the trust that was built, right? That that baby knew that they would be cared for so tenderly and like with such great respect from really early on. Yeah. It's a really beautiful way of being with children. And I think it gives parents so much confidence. Like I'm curious, you know, in, in your parent infant classes, if you notice a shift in parents' confidence from the beginning to the end of the classes. I think, I mean, yeah, I think so. And I have had the pleasure of seeing a lot of these parents now on the other side with their babies at our playgroups. And so I can kind of see a difference, right. in how they speak to their baby. And I, you know, I think it, the classes are really good for partners too, <laughs> you know, cause it helps you wrap your head around what it's actually going to be like to be with a baby. And I know, you know, you've talked on this class about, or not in this class, but in, on your podcast about scripts before mm-hmm. <laughs> and how you know, it's the sentiment over the script. And I think in the, in the class we do, you know, I model and we talk about what it might sound like to say something to your baby. And I think those things can be helpful, but mostly it's about thinking about what your authentic voice would be for your baby. Right. And just being freed to be radically candid with your kid, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think can be like really confidence inducing. Right. So like one thing we talk about is like when your baby is crying, you don't have to make them quiet as fast as possible, right? Like that's not, it's not your job to quiet them as fast as possible. And I think that's kind of mind blowing to some people, you know, because we think of like a crying baby being something that's really irritating, which it, you know, it is, it can be, but something that should be stopped right away. And when you reframe it as like, you know, crying is communication, then maybe it sounds like, oh, I hear you're crying. Um, I wonder if you're hungry. Okay. It's going to take me a minute to warm up the bottle. Oh, you're really crying. Why don't you watch what I'm doing? And then, you know, you go for the bottle. Maybe it's not the bottle. You're like, oh, I thought it was the bottle. Now you're really screaming. Um, Let's see if maybe stepping outside together helps. (laughs) You know, and I think it doesn't mean that you have to be unruffled all the time. You know, sometimes you will get ruffled, but knowing that that's okay and that you can repair with your kid, it can be really helpful, right? And so I think giving parents the confidence to try to figure it out out loud with their kid. I'm trying to figure out what you need. I don't know what you need. (laughs) This is really new to me too. Um, And then apologizing, right? Like you're allowed to apologize to your baby. You're like, oh, wow. I walked you outside. I offered you the bottle, but you have poop in your diaper. Of course, that's why you're crying. I didn't look right away. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You know, it's okay to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes, of course. And I think importantly too, is that like, um, you know, I get like a lot of times parents be like, but my kid doesn't understand a word I'm saying. And you're like, no, you're right. They don't. And keep doing it. It's got value to talk to your child in this way because one, they they are understanding a lot more than you realize because it's even if they don't have any receptive language yet, they understand 
facial expression, tone, cadence, rhythm, all of those non, non-linguistic elements, or I guess they're still linguistic, but like they're not words, um, still communicate a sense of safety to your child, a sense of, of um, I see you, I hear you, where I'm, I'm attuned to you. And then as a child does get more familiar with these things that you're saying and does develop receptive language and does start to understand the words, um, it's great for their language development, but also those things become their inner narrative, their self-talk. And we know that kids who engage in self-talk, especially sort of gentle and calm, patient self-talk when they're solving problems are the kids that do the best in academics, in emotional development, in social and relational development, all of these things. This is scientifically researched outside of Rye. Like this is just where Rye and psychology overlap, right? Um, We know that like We've talked about the, have you heard of the marshmallow study, that delay of gratification study where like, you know, a child is given one marshmallow and then they're told if you can wait and not eat this marshmallow, I'm going to leave the room and come back in 10 minutes. If you can wait, or maybe it's one minute or four minutes, but the idea is the child has to wait for you to come back. And if they can wait, they get two marshmallows instead of the one. So we're really testing can this child delay gratification, delay immediate gratification, eat the one marshmallow to get to wait for a greater reward? And the kids who are capable of waiting, the, the behavior that they tend to engage in that predicts their ability to wait is self-talk. Um, their ability to say, I don't want, and you'll see them in the videos being like, don't eat the marshmallow. I want to wait for the, I want to, I want to get the bigger marshmallow or they sit on their hands. But we're modeling for them in this process, this really healthy skill. Um, and it's kind because versus like critical self-talk, you know, like, oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? Right? Like they learn this stuff from us. Um, and maybe we're not telling our kids they're stupid. Why did you do that? And But maybe we're saying to ourselves, God, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? And our kids learn that too. So it's like, the way we speak to our children, certainly if you're using a Rye model, but a lot of times just if you're using kind of an attuned model, a gentle, respectful model, that becomes our kids' inner voice. And it's a huge predictor of mental wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're modeling that metacognition for them and you're probably keeping yourself calm while you're doing it <laughs> because a screaming baby is hard to listen to. And so keeping as much as you can that perspective and that cool. Um, you know, we'll help both of you. So what would be like one strategy that you might recommend to parents if they were are interested in this and want to like try something at home with their kids after listening to this episode and like, what's a good place to start? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I'm going to use Magda Gerber's answer, which is tell your child before you touch them, <laughs> you know, like if you're just going to choose one thing, just tell them before you do something to their body. Um, I'm going to pick you up and then maybe wait a minute, you know, not an actual minute, but wait to see if they're responsive to that. Right. We know even two month old babies are responsive to being told that they're about to be picked up. You know, so if you go slowly enough, you'll see Um, a little trick that I did in the kindergarten classroom would be like tap my foot 
five times after I asked a question. So, you know, give your child that Terry time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick you up and then go to pick them up, <laughs> you know, give them the chance to respond. Um, but I think it works for toddlers too, right? Um, you're letting them know about the transition that's about to happen. You know, if you're going to wipe your kid's face, let them know you're about to wipe, wipe their face, you know, <laughs> maybe let them help out too, but at least let them know that something's about to happen to their body. I think that's the number one thing you could start with is understanding that children deserve that courtesy of knowing what's about to happen to their body yeah. before they're touched. Yeah. And if people want to learn a little bit more about your work and Beat Street Parenting, how can they, how can they find you? Yeah. Um, I have a bit of an Instagram presence at Beach Street Parenting. Definitely always like intellectually interesting to figure out how to communicate some of this really nuanced stuff in little squares, but you know, that's kind of a fun challenge. Um, and then I have my website too, beachstreetparenting.com. And then if you're in Portland, there's the play groups available as well. Oh, great. We'll put links to everything in the show notes, but if you have the opportunity to take a parent infant class, I couldn't encourage you more. I think that they are, they're wonderful for your child, but they're really wonderful for the parent. Um, I think they're, they, they're paradigm shifting. Like they shift the way you look at parenthood. They shift the way you look at your child. They're incredible. So I, I highly recommend. Um, so much of Rye though, it's like you, it's, it's not earth shattering, right? Mm -hmm. It makes so much sense. You're, I've had people say like, oh, thank you for putting words to what I was already thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Or kind of the opposite, like it all makes total sense and I would have never thought of it, yes. <laughs> but it really does feel um, tangible and relatable. It really does. And yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I'm so glad to connect with you on this. This is really fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope this episode allows you to really cut yourself some slack, realize that you don't have to get anything right 100% of the time, and find the value in slowing down for yourself and for your child. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could go ahead and follow, rate, and review Securely Attached on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. It's a small act, but it has a huge impact, and it lets the powers that be, those guys that control the algorithm, know that parents are enjoying and benefiting from these episodes and that you want to hear more. I read every single review and comment that you leave, and I'm so happy to have been a small part of your parenting journey. I truly appreciate you being part of this community. Thank you so much for being here. And as always, don't be a stranger. (laughs) 